You were laughing up until that Hannibal Lecter one, and then I don't know so much on that. (laughs) So, we have been going through this letter called Galatians. It's a book you'll find in the New Testament, but it's actually a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of these early followers of Jesus, but one that didn't start that way. And it's a letter written to this church, or rather, collection of churches in a region of present-day Turkey called Galatia, trying to help them steer through the confusion that in order to be acceptable to God, they have to adopt and live up to what is called the works of the law. Now, we've been several weeks in Galatians already, and in the sixth chapter book, we are coming near the end of chapter three today. And as I said earlier, chapter three especially, it's hard. It's confusing But it is profound. And if you give it the time and attention and patience that it's looking for, it will rock your world and your way of thinking around all the misconceptions and false perceptions that Christians and non-Christians have alike about what the Christian life actually entails. And so we're going to pick up with that today. Now, Paul has been dropping left and right these bombs, going, you are Abraham's children. He's been saying this over and over and over again. And implicit to the entire idea is that the Galatians actually want to be Abraham's children. Or more specifically, they want to be among the chosen people of God, which have historically been viewed as Jews particularly Jews who adhere to the Old Testament works of the law, as Galatians will put it. And Paul is trying to argue that the gospel of God is something radically different. That to be a part of the covenant people of God and to be acceptable and pleasing to God and to be a part of God's family, it has nothing to do with you at all. It doesn't depend on your obedience, your adherence, or the way that you follow these commands of old. It's because of what Christ did for you. Because in its broadest terms, the gospel is about what God does, not what you do. And Paul is telling these Galatians that if they abandon the gospel... They are doing nothing short of abandoning God himself. And if they twist the gospel, to use his language, pervert the gospel, they are doing nothing short of twisting and perverting God himself. More so, he says that the gospel is so much more than a way to get right with God that we then have to build on as though it's the ABCs of the Christian faith just to get us started. No, Paul's message is very different in Galatians. He says it's not the ABCs, but the A2Z. It is the totality. It is the all-encompassing reality of what life with God is grounded in and looks like and Christian living is about. It is all about what God God does. It is not about what you do. It is about the gospel, not the works of the law. And this is the point that Paul is trying to bring home again and again and again. And challenging these Galatians by and us by too. 
throughout this letter. And it's where we're going to pick up today. So we hit what's called a climax passage. These next few sentences that I'm going to share with you are kind of like the mountaintop, if you will, the conclusion of everything Paul has been arguing about in chapter 3, but arguably even of the gospel itself. I invite you to follow along. There's paper copies under the chairs. Digital copies on your phone are always great. But I'll put a few sentences on the screen. And let me show it to you, and I just encourage you to follow along as I read it here this morning. He says this, You are all sons. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And if you can get these few verses down, I would even encourage you to memorize them. You will get the idea of where Galatians has been flowing. I want you to read it, actually, along with me. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now stop and change it to a first person. Change it to we or me. Can you do the first sentence with me again? We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of us who were baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ. And no matter who you are, and I mean this, I mean this, and you can take me to task right with these words here, no matter who you are, what your background is, what you formerly believed, the quality of your life, the color of your skin, your nation of origin, your gender, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're all sons. These ethnic divides, these racial divides, doesn't matter. Neither Jew nor Greek, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. These socioeconomic divides, rich and poor, not a slave nor free, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The male, female divides, it doesn't matter. Because you're all sons. And that means you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And more than just his descendants, you're heirs. Heirs to the estate. Heirs to the promise. I want to unpack some of this with you today. And first, I think I need to start here. That when it comes to our relationship with God, sonship is not a given. I think we all kind of have a knee-jerk tendency to think that we're all children of God. Like, because we're human, we're, we're, we're children 
of God because we're made in God's image that we're natural born children of God. Now, I don't know, you can take issue with this, but Jesus says there's only one son, that God has one and only son for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and it ain't you. You are not children of God. No, not natural born. You're not. The Bible will use other language. It will call you children of the world. Jesus is a little more fierce. Everyone thinks Jesus is the kind one. Man, man, he can ratchet up both ways. Jesus will call you sons of the devil. That's your natural lineage, at least from a biblical perspective and a biblical point of view. You are natural, not natural-born sons of God. You are adopted. I don't talk about this much, not even with my own family, but I'm adopted. A lot of people don't actually realize that. I was born to a person utterly abusive and cruel. A terror, you could say. And of course, as anyone can attest to, that when they're born to someone of a certain persuasion and, and, and experience life under their dominion, it has a lasting effect on you. It kind of shapes you. You know what I mean? But at about five weeks of age, I was adopted. It was March 10th, actually, and it was a rescue adoption. Brought out of the possession and ownership of a horrible, cruel, quote-unquote father and given to a father figure who took me as his own, who loved me, who cared for me and raised me and taught me and sacrificed for me and even gave me his name. And more than that, treated me as one of his own and said, you are an heir to my estate. All that I have is yours. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I know who my biological mother and father are. And they're wonderful, loving, imperfect human beings. No, I'm talking about what Paul is saying here. I am a child of the devil. But on March 10th, when I was baptized... God took me out of possession of a cruel tyrant taskmaster and brought me into his family and treated me as one of his own. He adopted me. And that's exactly what God, through his gospel, does for you. Do you think of yourself as adopted? You should. In Christ you are. 
We do not get to claim some natural entitlement to the things of God. Everything we have from God is simply because he has chosen me and given it to me by his love and mercy and grace. That's adoption. And for any of you here who are adopted, that to you should be fantastic good news because biologically some of our parents were stuck with us. But your parents chose you. And to me, that's infinitely more powerful. God chose you. You are sons of God. Don't you dare take it for granted. You are sons of God because God adopted you. And by the way, you are sons. You are not children. You are not daughters. You are sons. And ladies, that includes you too. Paul often gets a bad rap among the double X chromosome stripe in this world. People claiming he's misogynistic, a woman hater, derogatory towards women, negligent of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your sons, ladies, your sons, and you want to be a son. Because do you know what Paul is saying to you? Something absolutely radical and revolutionary. He's saying in his context, when women had few rights, when daughters, though biologically born, did not inherit property, he's saying you do. With God, it's different. No, you want to be a son because making, becoming a son makes you an heir. Now, if you're reading a digital copy of the Bible, it might say children of God. Scratch it out. You're like, it's on my phone. I know, take a black permanent marker and put it right over that part of your phone. <laughs> In an effort to cut through confusion, modern translations have downplayed the Son of God language when it comes to you and me as his family, but in so doing, end up missing one of the most profound points Paul is making that not only has God adopted you, but God has invested in you, all of you, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, the full rights, the full authority, the full hope and expectation of in his world what only a son would receive. And as an aside, if you're still bothered by it a little, just kind of understand that the Bible is an equal opportunity offender when it comes to like these gender languages. Uh, because, you know, the other like, prevailing metaphor for all of us is that we're the bride of Christ. So, so brothers, you're a bride too. Ladies, you're a son. Guys, you're a bride, which should be wonderfully good news because some of you will finally get that princess wedding that you've always dreamed of. <laughs> I just don't want to see you in the dress. 
God has adopted you as his own. This is the point that he's making. Not because of what you have done. Not because of the law that you have obeyed. He's chosen you and by God in his grace sent his son to die and rise again. And through Jesus, sonship is yours. You are Abraham's seed. And unless we get so hung up on the hot topic of male or female, let's not miss the most revolutionary thing Paul is saying in this context, that Gentiles are sons too. Historically, the sons of God were the biological descendants of Abraham. Not all of them, and Paul will get into that later, but certainly with biological family tree link. They were the receivers of the covenant. They were the ones who knew God and in their history to whom God had revealed himself. They were the ones who were chosen. But not anymore, Paul says. It's not like that anymore. It has nothing to do with your biology. It has nothing to do with your adherence to a code. Gentiles, now you're Jews. Or should I say you are Israel? Gentiles, though no biological link, you are Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, and therefore heirs according to the promise. And why? Because you've been baptized into Christ. You know what that word means, baptized? I bet your mind goes to like some water that we pour on like a screaming kid's head. That's an expression of baptism. That's a tangible outcropping of baptism. But that is not the totality of what Paul's means. This word simply means immersed. You were immersed in Christ. And all of you who were immersed in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So often we think about God being in our heart, but have you ever thought about you being in his? That your life is swallowed. Can I use that language? Swallowed into his? Well, I don't want to be swallowed. Then think about it this way. You have been clothed with Christ. That what marks you, that what identifies you, that what's closest to you, your very clothes, is Christ himself. He's saying you've been plunged into him so that when God sees you, he sees Christ. And that's what's true of Christ becomes true of you. It's what the entire gospel is about. I love this metaphor of clothing, of getting dressed with Christ. All the things that our clothing does and expresses. It's kind of our primary form of identity, isn't it? You know, we all have a certain style. And even if our style is the absence of a style, that no style is actually our style. Because it says clothing isn't important to me or my life is too busy. It expresses things. What we choose to wear, the colors we choose to buy, the adornments we choose to put on, what we wear for the date versus the job versus working around the house, it says something. 
You've been clothed with Christ. Imagine what the Jesus suit says about you. You follow what I mean? I do think about the physical proximity. Many of you know that we do a, a podcast. <clears throat> it's on Wednesday afternoons at 12.30 called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. We had someone text in about Jeremiah chapter 13 where Jeremiah is, I kid you not, commanded to get a nice silky pair of underwear. And he's called to wear it. And then he's called to take it off and go bury it out in the dirt and leave it there for a few weeks. And then to dig it up and put it on again. Isn't that like the grossest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> and the point that the prophet Jeremiah makes is this. This is how God treats you. You are as close to me, God says, as my underwear. How close is what you're wearing in Christ to you? I think about what it means to be clothed in Christ. It's an imitation, isn't it? You ever see two people dressed like exactly alike? Have you ever seen the family wear all the same clothes and like make fun of them behind their back? You know what I mean? Like we all got the same t-shirts and like, you know, mom is thinking this is the best thing ever and dad is just dying but keeping his mouth quiet because he knows what's good for him and the oldest daughter or son is rolling their eyes and the youngest ones thinks this is the best thing ever. Have you ever lived it? Do you know it? Have you ever shown up wearing something and someone else was wearing the exact same thing? What does it mean to wear Christ, to imitate Christ, to go, this is how Jesus is portrayed. This is how Jesus looks. I want to be like that. I'm going to dress like Jesus when I grow up. You know what I mean? It's kind of what he's saying. But so much more, I think it implies some kind of acceptability to God. That when God sees you, he sees your Jesus clothes. He sees that which covers you. That the way God views you, if I can push the metaphor, is the way that he views his one and only son because you are dressed, clothed up, disguised or baptized into him. You are all sons. Sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And that also means something else. That we're one. Isn't that the point? There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Because when it's all God and has nothing to do with me, my efforts, my abilities, my aptitudes, my position in life, the honor given me in this, if it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with God, how can anyone think that they're better than someone else? How can anyone ever compare themselves to someone else in a better or worse capacity? If we are all sinners in the same boat adopted by God, which of us has any right to brag, to claim superiority, to hold ourselves over one 
another. Or on the inverse, to think ourselves inferior to another because I am a son and an heir too. And if the world as we know it could simply get this one little bit out of the Bible, what a different world, a different culture, a different life we would live. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul isn't saying that there isn't any distinction. There are things unique to you as there's things to unique to me, both at the level of our personality, but also of our ethnicity, of our socioeconomic background, and our gender. But the point he's making is that those distinctions, while wonderful, fundamentally don't affect one stinking bit. You're standing before God. We are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul moves on. And last week, we gave you a fire hose amount of material about how the Bible tries to conceptually think of our relationship to the law. And if you left confused, all I can say is rock on. Because it is tough, and it is profound, and it is a very different way of thinking that most Christians don't quite get. But if you'll allow the Bible to speak for itself and not impose on it what you think it should say, It'll do that to you. And it shows that you're starting to read it correctly. Let's go back to the law because Paul picks up and he says this. What I'm, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he is Lord of all, your translation might say master of the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of this world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might become or receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And he's not referring to the 70s band. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Track with me. Follow along with me what Paul is trying to say. We spoke last week about babysitters. And many, if not all of us, have had them at one point in our life. In the time when we have babysitters, the babysitter has authority over us, even though we are the one who is closest to the parents who have entrusted us there, even though we are the one 
who is entitled to the home in which the babysitter is watching us in. And even though we are the future heirs to the inheritance or estate, are you with me? But our parents place a babysitter over us because we are not quite yet ready to handle it. We're not ready to be on our own. We haven't yet grown up. And so we're a risk to ourselves and to others in the house and to the very house itself. And so we need the guidance, direction, and even authority of the babysitter who was with me. Are you following? Now, in the ancient world, your babysitter would be a slave. By and far, it would be a slave. It's estimated in the Roman world that one out of three people were slaves. And you have to kind of distance your thinking from the way that we think of slavery here in 17th, 18th, and 19th century America, the chattel, chattel slaving, racially approached slave mentality. No, it, it didn't quite work the same way back then. So, for example, the gospel writer Luke, there's a likelihood that he was probably a slave. But in the ancient world, your babysitter would be a slave. And the parents would entrust you to him. Now, the slave has no right to the father, no right to the estate, no right to the home. And yet he is placed in charge until you come of age. And so Paul is saying it's just like you with the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was a babysitter. When Israel was in its infancy, unable and not yet ready to live in the maturity of what it means to be a son of God. And just like a dad who owns a company doesn't give it to his 10-year-old to run, Neither did God give to Israel complete authority to conduct their lives without direct guidance of a babysitter called the law. So when we were children, we were in slavery under the law. But when the time had fully come, the time when God sent his son you know, the one born of Mary. The one born under that system of the law. Born to redeem us or adopt us out of slavery under the law. When the time had fully come, God sent his son so that we might receive that full adoption. And now, because you are sons, as Paul said last week, you are no longer under the supervision of the law. So what do I do? How do I know? Because you are sons, God sends his spirit. He sends his spirit into our hearts. A spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Because heirs need guidance. And the law provided that guidance. 
for a time in Israel's history, but now God has sent his son, to, uh, sent his spirit to be near you and with you, to guide you, to do something that the law could never do. To bring that guidance in how to live as his child. And this new relationship, rather than being under a legal code from God, is the most intimate of things. How many of us are guilty of thinking of God as the cruel taskmaster, the teacher at school, or the police officer, or the judge who's concerned with nothing more than checking off the laws that we have followed and the rules that we have broken? Is that your relationship with God? If so, it's a relationship with a perversion of the who, the, who the true God truly is. That's at least what Paul would say. God is not about a list of rules. A relationship with God is not about a legal code that we follow in order to be in sonship status. No, you're a son. And within it, you'll please him and within it, you'll hurt him. Within it, you will do things that bring him delight. And within your status as son, you will do things that break his heart. But you are a son, nonetheless. And because he loves you, he will guide you. And he does it by his spirit. And by that spirit, we don't fear God as some judge or taskmaster or authoritarian teacher or cruel babysitter. No. As a dad by which we can say Abba, Father. Let me unpack that word a little bit for you. It's an Aramaic word that basically means dad or daddy. What you call your dad growing up? Father? Maybe, and if so, and that was imposed on you, I'm sorry. I mean, maybe it really worked in your house, and I don't know, but, but, but could you imagine having a relationship? Father? It's not really how our culture works today. No, what do we call him? We call him dad. There's something endearing to it, isn't there? Personal to it. That you don't have to sit here questioning your relationship to this father who's adopted you. He says, call me dad. Call me dad. I remember when my stepdad told me to call him dad. It does something to the relationship. The almighty power of the universe invites you to call him dad, and you can cry out to him. You can cry out to him like a son does to his dad with tears, with anger, with fear, with vulnerability. Not needing to be embarrassed before him, neither needing to fear his hand against you. That you can come to it spontaneously. You can call him and cry out. Dad. People who study this kind of stuff, they'll say it's actually Abba is, is Aramaic baby talk. Daddy. For the life of me, I couldn't call my dad daddy. Not today. It just feels so ew, right? And yet isn't there something amazing in it? 
that level of intimacy? And what's significant is to whom Paul is saying it. He's saying it to Gentiles who probably didn't speak a lick of Aramaic. So why would he teach them an Aramaic word by which to call their father dad? Well, simple. It's because that's what Jesus called him. Read it on your own. You can look at places like Mark 14 and other areas of the Bible. That when Jesus talked to his father, he called him Abba. And because you're adopted, you have the same rights, the same privileges, the same inheritance as Jesus himself. Is that not mind-blowing? Because all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Your relationship to the Heavenly Father can be just like His. And so, I want to leave you with two questions. And I want you to ask yourself this sincerely. Am I acting like a slave who is afraid of God or like a child who is assured of my father's love? And I tell you, I think the answer to that question comes down to whether you root your relationship with God in the gospel or in the law. Let me ask it again. Are you acting like a slave who is afraid of God or like a child assured of your father's love? And if it's the second, if it's the second, then let me ask one more question of you. Are you ready to inherit God's kingdom? Because you are heirs according to the promise. Are you ready to inherit not just the blessing, but the authority invested in you as an heir of the kingdom? Because I tell you this, through Christ and the Spirit, God thinks you're ready. I know you don't think you're ready. You still want a babysitter. Have you ever noticed how God often thinks we're far more ready for things than we think we're ready for? Welcome to the Christian faith. This is what Galatians 3 and 4 is getting at. And so today we commune. We celebrate a oneness, a oneness that we have with God and a oneness that we have with each other in this thing that we call communing. That's what this is. We come and celebrate it because of what our older brother did for us, giving his life and rising again.